Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Howdy, Pilgrim. Welcome to Conversations with the Boyce Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Sasha Ayad, licensed professional counselor and specialist of gender questioning youth. In this conversation, we talk about the ways in which the gender ideology is pushing youth in directions that they have a really hard time getting back from if they decide to change their mind. She is a frequent guest and so I'll let you have at her, and uh, always happy to have her. Here's Sasha Ayad. Um. Yeah. So, hello. Are hey. we recording? I mean, we are always recording when it's. Yeah, I'll you. cut in, but I, I won't okay. publish anything. If you want to do some off-recording conversation, we can. If you want, we can do off-recording after. After party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm here. I'm mentally present now. Are you? Where are you? Florida, Arizona, Texas? I'm in Arizona. I'm in Arizona. Is it Tuxcon? Or Pihaix? Poenix? Peonix? Peonix? Yeah. Yeah, I'm in Peonix right now. Actually, there's no clever way to pronounce it, but I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. Scottsdale. I can... Scottsdale. That's how you Wait, you, you hang out with a broad with a brogue, right? Okay, if I, I'm lost now. I don't know Stella, what that means. Stella's got a brogue. A oh, Irish brogue. What does that mean? It's the, oh. the, the accent. That's what it, a, a brogue is an accent? Oh, it's the Scot, it's the Irish specific accent, but the Scottish oh. specific accent, which Watson slash Sinead has, is a bra. Oh, I didn't know any of this. Really? But yes, I do hang out with Stella. We talk all the time on our podcast, which has been really fun. Actually, the last time I was on your program was when we were just getting ready to launch the podcast. So How many episodes it's been a while. Do you have? Um, episode 26 is coming out tomorrow. So, um, yeah, it's gone by really fast, but it's been a very interesting, really, it's like the treat of my week when we're recording the podcast. I'm really enjoying it. And you guys are mapping so much territory too. Yeah. I mean, it feels like we have an, an endless amount of topics to cover and we're constantly thinking about interesting people we want to interview. And, um, it's, it's almost hard to kind of rein it in and figure out, well, what should we do next? Because we have all of these ideas, but it's been, it's been really interesting. And, um, we've been kind of surprised in a pleasant way by the feedback. I mean, first of all, I think a lot of dysphoric people who are either 
trans and continue to identify as trans or people in the process of detransition or dysphoric people who are kind of on the fence have reached out and, and commented about how helpful the podcast has been for them. And that's been really, really nice because, you know, we, we often hear from parents who are really appreciative of our work. And then in individual therapy, of course, we have our client relationships. But in terms of other feedback we tend to get online, there's a lot of accusations that come from kind of activist communities that we're doing really harmful things. Uh, but some of the feedback we've gotten, it indicates otherwise, and it seems to be really helpful for people who even are going to transition or have transitioned. So I think that's really great to hear. When you are accused of being har- doing harmful things, I'm very aware, and I've documented thoroughly, the uh, inflation of the word harm uh, and the accusations of harm being leveled against people in order to strictly, in a political sense, shut them down. Mm-hmm. But what would be the strongest way to s- that you could possibly be harming trans people or the trans community and not just you specifically but people in your position putting out this information that you have been putting out well i think we've touched on this in in a previous conversation but i think one of the possible um arguments that that would make sense from the outside is that you know myself as a clinician making an observation about a cultural phenomenon and my opinion of it is very different from what the actual clinical work looks like with a a gender dysphoric teenager, right? So I might say to you as a therapist who's observing all of this happen, that I think that there's been a social contagion and I think some of these young people wouldn't have been dysphoric otherwise and I don't really think you can be born in the wrong body. But in a clinical setting, I'm not saying that to any of my clients. I'm approaching that with a lot more care. So I think if anything, people on the outside who listen to some of my interviews or, you know, some of the kind of quick things I've written about it could easily misconstrue what therapy looks like. And I think that's particularly why the podcast has been so great because we're able to slow down and without the obstruction of time, we're able to really dig into these topics. And we're actually working on a series right now called Behind the Curtain. And we're talking about exactly what happens in therapy with a gender dysphoric person. So that gives audiences the opportunity to really hear how does this look in practice rather than me talking about what I think theoretically about gender dysphoria. So I I found that to be a really valuable way to put it out there. And granted, most of our you know, most of the complaints about us are coming from individuals who are not going to really sit there and spend the time to listen. But if they were to listen to our podcast, I think any misconceptions they have about how I work would quickly be dispelled. And I think the work that I do and the work that Stella does and the work that a lot of our colleagues do is, is very basic. And it's, it's, still respects where the client is. If somebody is identified as trans, we don't attempt to change that. We don't challenge them on that. Um, And we just reject the idea that asking questions or exploring with more depth is some kind of conversion therapy. And I've really tried to think about, like, could I be doing harm by exploring these questions with young people? And as of yet, based on the clinical caseload that I have and the responses I've gotten from my clients and their families, I don't think there's anything about our work that is in any way harmful. If anything, 
I think it helps to open things up for kids. And whether they transition or not, it's always valuable to be self-reflective and to be curious about your experiences and why you have certain patterns or how those patterns might interact with your dysphoria. So I think all of that's valuable. I mean, not that we always get it perfectly right. I mean, therapists are people too. And sometimes I might, you know, interpret something that doesn't make sense to a client or maybe I'm off the mark with something, but that's the process we kind of explore and then check in with the client and see what they think. So yeah, I don't think there's anything harmful about therapy (laughs) properly done. Yeah. Uh, And you are, I guess it's fair to suppose that you're always doing professional development. And there's probably probably a Venn diagram of gender-specific therapeutic care and then just therapy in general. And I think we've covered this a little bit in the past, but especially in our conversation with Stella, we talked about, well, how recent is this idea of gender therefore how recent is this idea of gender therapy and you might be on the front lines if not yourself of developing tools specified towards gender but also collecting as many as possible is that fair to say and what are some of the things that you've been uh, gaining better tools about this particular topic Mm -hmm. or therapy in general gosh i think when it comes to the current surge of rapid onset, like adolescent onset gender dysphoria, I would say that some of my work is, you know, taking a a new approach here. So I think that's fair to say. However, when you look at the literature about psychologists and, and therapists and psychiatrists who have been treating gender issues for some time, I think many of them have recognized that there are factors that can contribute to a person's gender distress, like family dynamics or, you know, sexual orientation has been known to be an aspect of gender distress for many, many decades. So in in some ways, I'm really hoping to build on uh, all of the clinicians and the work that has come from before. Um, But I think the tools that I'm trying to use are maybe more of an integration of different therapy modalities. So I think, you know, there's a component of this that has to do with somebody's relationship to their body. So I try to draw from what we know about, for example, treating eating disorders, try to, you know, draw a little bit from that modality that's been, you know, there's lots of ways to treat eating disorders too. It's not like there's one standard approach only. Um, but I think, you know, okay, if, if someone is experiencing some distress with their body, maybe we can draw from some of the best principles there. And then maybe we can also look at some CBT and how we might have unhelpful thought patterns. So I, I try to draw from different therapy modalities that I think can offer some value to a patient having gender distress. And so it's pretty eclectic, um, mm-hmm. the way I work with young people. Um So in terms of tools, I mean, it really depends on the client. And I draw on a broad range of therapeutic tools, depending on who I'm working with, because each client is going to be kind of predisposed to something a little bit different. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's a pretty eclectic way of working. Is there a spectrum of gender dysphoria or gender distress or gender-based confusion or something like that? A spectrum between it rooted in the body, like really deep discontent with one's body Mm -hmm. and then rooted in just 
this kind of nebulous world of and what's what's the have you noticed like there's a spectrum there mm-hmm, and what's kind mm-hmm. of the difference uh, yeah where people fall hundred percent hundred percent yeah I'm glad you bring that up actually we talked about this a bit in our podcast I think there's a, a difference between and I don't want to make it seem like the lines are very very clear because of course they can be blurry but there is a difference between young people who present with gender dysphoria who are really really similar to the presentation of like a body disorder or body image disorder eating disorder patient versus some other young people who seem to be really struggling with other things like maybe they're a kid who has felt really lonely and isolated and gender identity is their kind of way into a sense of community or belonging they may not necessarily have the strong kind of body dysphoria component um And conversely, like some other young people feel really lost in their sense of identity. And maybe there's something about being gender nonconforming or uh, being transgender that appeals to some other developmental task they have. So I I totally think there's, I don't want to call it a spectrum because it makes it seem as though some are more distressing than others. (laughs) But there are different, I guess, let's say, um, needs that are attempting to be met or motivations underlying the gender dysphoria that really vary from person to person. And sometimes, you know, when you start digging into it, you know, a client might realize this is a way to kind of escape or be less visible. Like there can be such a broad range of things driving the dysphoria and it takes some time and it takes some unpicking to, you know, hypothesize about that and connect the dots about that and check in to see if the client thinks that might be going on. I think a lot of these things happen, you know, in a way that's not always obvious initially, it's kind of a subconscious thing. And then through the work of therapy, when you slow down and, and you kind of create a low pressure environment, you can really discover what is the root cause. And sometimes it's really obviously just a body image issue, mm-hmm. like what you said. Is there... I guess then a spectrum of, I don't know how to phrase this question, but I can see how maybe with the option of medicalization there, is that overrepresented in young people's minds as the next step? Are they always thinking about that? Is that inevitable that they think about changing the body to match the mind mm-hmm. if they are, if their distress isn't necessarily located directly in a body image uh, mm-hmm. disorder mm-hmm. or distress? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one of the benefits of doing therapy kind of over a long span of time rather than like six weeks or 12 weeks of therapy is that you get to see how this evolves for patients or for clients, I guess I should say. I do call them clients. I don't know. I end up seeing patients sometimes. But I think at first, because the kids I work with, at least, they have all come to question their gender through a specific kind of avenue. Almost all of them have started exploring gender identity on the internet and reading kind of like Tumblr posts and Reddit. And all of that, I I feel hesitant to call it information, but all of that kind of rhetoric around gender dysphoria really points to the transition process. Mm -hmm. So initially, many of them kind of have that as a built-in next step in their mind. But over time, what I have found is that some young people, if they're able to like feel more comfortable in their body or start thinking about gender in a more flexible way, that focus on the transition process sometimes becomes a lot less important. 
And I think, you know, you see some people who identify as trans or non-binary or something for an extended period of time without really any medical steps. And then other kids rush down the medical pathway as fast as possible. So again, I think this is really individualized and mm-hmm. it's hard to make blanket statements because lots of different young people yeah. have become kind of distressed around their gender that I think otherwise, you know, in a different generation, they wouldn't have. So we're, we're kind of capturing like a really broad type of population here, even though, you know, the the literature, the little literature we have about gender dysphoria does indicate that many of them have had depressive episodes or anxiety or like some of these common traits, but they're also very, very different and they need to be treated like individuals. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's not there's not just kind of one pattern that I see, though, you know, it's also important to remember that in adolescence, you know, that's a very normal thing to get fixed on a concrete solution to your problems. It's very much a part of being a teenager and a young adult to kind of go full steam ahead with what you think will the solution that the solution will be. So it's not developmentally unusual. It just so happens that right now at this period in time, there's this particular cultural story that feels really salient for these kids, but they're doing something that I think in a different time period or a different generation could have looked slightly different, you know? Mm-hmm. We You brought up Reddit and Tumblr, and that is the... <laughs> <laughs> things are moving TikTok. so fast. Let's let's not forget things okay. do move so fast. Like TikTok yeah. is new, and that's a whole other thing that I I'm yeah, learning about, but barely know anything about. <laughs> yeah, I've looked at that. There's some pretty interesting dynamics, let's say, on uh, around gender and uh, how one is to act. And there's certain mm-hmm. young people who are very on fire telling other people how to act but that's kind of also development it's inappropriate but it's developmentally appropriate or it's a inappropriateness that you can kind of expect from a Mm -hmm. certain um age group however what i was saying is that tumblr and reddit and now tiktok those are classic ways to learn about gender and to get into that i've been seeing because it is pride month that bloomberg and Mm -hmm. npr among others these major outlets are now pushing the same exact thing that five years ago was bottled up in tumblr and reddit and now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's being completely enshrined by the uh or legitimized i i suppose by the major news outlets and at least mm-hmm. probably uh their younger cohort of uh journalists if we can call them that yeah do you have any thoughts about how that scales and how that influences your work i suppose specifically yeah i mean this has kind of been my fear for a couple of years that this was going to go fully mainstream, you know, no longer is it a 15 year old who's like telling mom, Oh, by the way, did you know that you can identify as a different gender and that sex isn't, you know, real to NPR telling mom that like, that was my concern. So I, I, I think this just goes to show that there's some, there's either an idea that is so powerful that it's so enticing that people can't, kind of slow down the proliferation of it in our culture, which might mean there's something there for us to look at. Why is this such a powerful idea? Or some of these 
you know, activist groups that really do have a huge amount of funding behind them and a lot of power are pushing their way into institutions while the institutions aren't even sure what they're getting themselves into. And the sense that I get is that it's the latter. You know, I think if you are an outsider looking in and you don't really understand this kind of conveyor belt of medicalization and surgery that is happening to these kids, you might think, of course, what's the problem with supporting transgender rights? It sounds like such a great thing. And I suspect that these institutions just have no idea what the consequence is. And on the other hand, what I see is that because so many kind of um, like hospitals and clinics have popped up over the last you know decade and a half and have been transitioning all these young children, those kids are now coming of age and they're turning 17, 18, 19, and 20. And we are seeing a surge of people detransitioning. So I think, you know, the detransition Reddit, you know, started out, of course, with zero and it got built up. And now there's something like, is it 19,000? Have you looked at it lately? It's some crazy number. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, don't quote me on that exact number, but it is now just huge. And, you know, for example, 60 Minutes did this piece recently about transgender health care, and they they spent a little bit of time talking about detransition. And I think, you know, we're going to see this kind of parallel process where you see institutions fully adopting this like hyper kind of queer theory based idea of gender and also you're going to see the fallout, which is a medical fallout. You cannot deny the realities of the medical implications for these young people. So it's happening at the same time, but I think eventually, and we're starting to see it, there is a complete clash. So I think, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, there were people like myself and some of my colleagues who were kind of waving the flag of concern, like, hey, this is a problem and nobody really believed us and they thought we were all kind of crazy conspiracy theorists. But now, I mean, a news program as big as 60 Minutes is covering this topic and this is a real problem. So the days of trans activists saying, this isn't really a big deal. This is a minority of a minority. This barely ever happens. I think that's over. And wait, just wait, the wait, facts wait. are going to reveal themselves. But 60 Minutes was very careful to include that specific claim. That's true. That's true. You know, 60 Minutes, if you think about the position that they are under and they're in, it's very challenging because, first of all, there is all of this legislation right now that states are proposing to, I think, to criminalize childhood transition. That's a big deal. And they had to cover that in their piece. It makes perfect sense. They, they have to pull in the cultural context, you know, of what's mm-hmm. happening right now politically. And, I mean, I, I see their piece... As I totally understand why the detransitioners that they spoke with felt frustrated about how the piece was framed. And I personally felt frustrated that the main um, character in the piece, I think someone named Erica Anderson, I, I believe, a therapist, kind of framed the detransitioners as trans people who didn't get the appropriate health care. And I thought that was very manipulative. And I don't know if this person said that in order to be manipulative, but the whole point is that actually, no, these are just regular kids who had their genitals cut off 
And if you keep saying they're transition people or trans people with poor health care, you're totally missing the mark and you're manipulating their stories. So I had a, a major problem with that. And on the other hand, I completely understand what a precarious place CBS is in. And I'm really grateful to them for doing the story, even though it didn't cover detransition exclusively. It did for the first time, I think, in a, in a huge kind of platformed way, gave audiences an idea that something unhealthy is happening with how quickly we're affirming gender identities and transitioning young people. And so I really have to say, I'm very grateful that they did that story. And I mean, it's it's a way of introducing the concept. And I think other news outlets will probably get interested and pick it up. And people who see this program might then go and do some research about what this detransition thing means. So it's um it's a starting point. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, been wrestling recently with the phrase trans kids or the the trans kid, because once you invent that category, then it seems mm -hmm. like, oh, it's always been there. It always will be. It's an actual category. But it's not really a category yet, especially if the child hasn't transitioned. They're not They're not trans. They're going through some sort right. of identity development. It's not trans. It's identity yeah, development. That's right. That's and right. then once that's you right. trans them, then they start becoming trans. But the category of detrans, yeah. of detransitioned, is a physical category. And it is that's a right. real situated in the body category. So once that category is you know, passed around in the public, people can't question it and they can't deny it. They can try to reframe mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. by saying, well, they were never trans mm -hmm. or they're, they're trans people who were got, got the wrong care, but they are literally detransitioned to, to a certain yeah. degree on a medical level. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Um, I think that's such a good point because it's, it's like, um, the word transgender can apply to anybody pre or post medical intervention, but the word detrans is a very specific thing. And it, it kind of, you know, I'm going to pull something in. Like we, we've created this organization called um, the International Association of Therapists for Desisters and Detransitioners. You love acronyms, so I do. I so A T D D. <laughs> oh, wait, I A T D D D. Um, yeah. Is that, can you pronounce it in your special Benjamin Boyce way? Yeah, to do. Yeah, to do. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, but but anyway, it's it's a group of therapists who are producing um, articles and information and trying to educate other clinicians and educate the public about detransition. And one of the things we have noticed, we've we've had a steady stream of individuals um, writing in requesting services, and what seems really clear to me from our work at IATDD, and also there was a recent study, a survey that came out of 237 detransitioners. And what it seems like is that there's always an on-ramp for transition, but there's no off-ramp. There's no off-ramp. They can the, the gender clinics can easily start somebody on these medical procedures, but they have no idea how to support somebody if they feel harmed by those procedures or if they want to stop identifying as trans. And it's it's kind of the same with this linguistic piece we're talking about. Like transgender is an umbrella term that applies to everybody, but 
there's no, like within the affirmative approach, detransitioners are barely even recognized or talked about. So again, it's kind of like everyone is very gladly accepted with open arms, come to like our trans community and come get medicalized. But then once there's a problem, it's, it's hands off. And so that just goes to show something is wrong. And I think there are some clinicians and doctors and therapists who work in trans affirmative care who are actually really open-minded in, in trying to understand what detransition means and trying to provide care for these individuals. But I think, I am guessing that you kind of have to question the whole paradigm. If you realize that lots of people who were affirmed are now detransitioning, you have to question whether the affirmative approach itself is appropriate. Especially if there's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of detransitioners. And if you had a, a, a survey of 230, and we know that there's a subreddit that's pretty big, and of course not everybody that follows it is a detransitioner, and maybe there's a lot of people who are against that. You know, it, it, It's all blind on Reddit. But if we fast forward the push on from Tumblr and Reddit to the mainstream platforming this, getting parents on board with this, getting society at large on board with this is something that's not even possible, but probable, likely, you know, if you, if you go through and you mm-hmm. calculate, well, one in every 100 people is trans, and you, you just make that a fact, then there's that entire industry, and maybe a fr- 1% of that 1% is detrans, then mm-hmm. even, even if detransitioners are being used by so-called conservative people to harm or denigrate or restrain the rights or reverse the rights from trans people, even even if you believe that, in the very, very least, the medical industry needs to have set aside tools to help those people. It can't just be a Hot mm-hmm. Wheels ramp where you just push the, mm-hmm. you, you load mm-hmm. up the little car, you push it down, and then it just goes off and you're done with it. There's mm-hmm. no landing pad. It's just this, you know, flying mm-hmm. through the air whippy mm-hmm. thing. So in the very, mm-hmm. very least, I think that everybody can be on board for getting detransitioners care and setting up that as a permanent installation within gender clinics at large and the medical industry at large. Mm-hmm. We might ask how many let's just let's just take it at face value that there's such a thing as trans people right that they're born a certain way and that they need medical intervention let's just for the sake of argument take that as a fact i think the affirmative care model is based on the idea that you know like how many how many non-trans people can be medicalized for the sake of providing affirmative care for all trans people like how many are we willing to sacrifice the affirmative care model, like based on some of the activist rhetoric, seems to say as many as necessary because they don't want to put any roadblocks to transition. So that must mean they're perfectly fine with medically intervening on a bunch of cis people just so that we can cover every trans person who might need it is going to get it easily. And to me, that is literally crazy. That's just totally illogical. Well, yeah, we, yeah, it's crazy logical as a statement, but as a practice, it's malpractice, and it's the grounds for the undermining of the trust in our institutions and our medical institutions, and not just the, mm-hmm. ju- not just our trust in them, but some legal action will come to the fore if that is implemented. You can't yeah. sacrifice people. <laughs> you can't do that. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of, um, you know, for a while on Netflix, there were all of these documentaries about people who were falsely incarcerated or people who were pressured into false confessions and, you know, put in jail for crimes they didn't commit. And that's a that's an appropriate reason to be shocked and angry at how justice is carried out, because it's like the same principle. Like, how many innocent people are we willing to jail just to make sure we capture every criminal? And I think... Yeah. Most people would err on the side of, no, we have to make sure that justice is carried out carefully and appropriately with every single case so that we don't have those false positives in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think a similar kind of outrage should be coursing through society when people realize that all of these young people who just needed maybe like a little time and psychological exploration and a little bit of kind of stabilizing have been medically transitioned for this cause. I I can't help but think that it's a cause and I wish it wasn't so contentious. I don't want to set up, you know, an us versus them paradigm at all. But some of the activist rhetoric just makes me think this doesn't seem to be based on actually protecting people or giving them appropriate health care or looking at their outcomes. This is really about just pushing forward a cause. Well, it's difficult to not enter into this conversation and spend time in this conversation as you have longer than me, but I've put in a couple years into this. It's very difficult to not end up <laughs> on put a in side. a lot of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, sure. and for while sure. I appreciate and I do trust that you suspend that cause anti cause um, in in the clinical setting, when you when you look outside at the the social factors of this, and then you enter into the conversation, and then let's say a very brilliant YouTuber has him on your channel to talk about some of the <laughs> uh, complexities of this issue, and you put yourself. In the limelight, and he, Barnaby Dixon, puts himself there, too, by, by presenting this non-popular view onto YouTube in the social media environment. And it attracts a large amount of pushback. I thought you were talking about yourself as the brilliant YouTuber for a minute there, but you are also a brilliant YouTuber. <laughs> Get out of town. <laughs> it's really because you've had me on a lot, so I thought that's obviously you. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, yeah. I, I was trying to do a segue into the backlash that that particular video of Philosophish and you that yeah. was just published a couple of days ago. There's a big pushback on that, uh, like a very strong pushback. And it looks like it could damage the reputation and the career of Barnaby uh, because the, that's how the social aspect of this is. So there's the medical aspect there's the the psychological aspect, the clinical aspect, both medically and then psychologically. And then there's the social aspect. And every time you speak out, you're interacting with that social aspect. I'm trying to formulate a question here, but yeah. how do you how do you get the the information out there, withstand that criticism, and and try? Uh, where are you at with that? How do you feel about that? Okay. Well. I mean, there are a lot of important things you you raised. First of all, I want to say that um, I don't think we should assume that this is going to have a negative impact on Barnaby's career. First of all, he... He's an incredibly thoughtful and sensitive person who, you know, the way he explained it to me is that he's really interested in having conversations about topics that are difficult to discuss. And he wants to use this medium of 
the philosophish to kind of raise questions and even challenge the guests. But but ultimately, he wants a compassionate discussion about topics that are important and kind of relevant right now that are difficult to talk about. So mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think he himself has really taken a side because this this is kind of how we led in there. I think he's just curious because, of course, any of us who are paying attention, see, this has become a really big topic in the culture to talk about transgender children and what's going on here. Hmm. So um, I don't see why just starting these conversations will end his career in any way. However, I do think based on the comments, you know, first of all, the likes are important too, because I think his video has far more likes than it has thumbs downs or whatever you call those. So more people liked it than didn't like it. Um, And of course, the comments are probably coming from individuals who either they themselves are, are very much bought into the idea of gender identity as a concept. They maybe are wrapped up in it. Or people who from the outside looking in, just kind of like what I alluded to earlier, they think that this doesn't make sense. They can't understand why would a therapist not be supportive of trans kids. And if you haven't really looked into the topic and you're not aware of all of the complexity and some of the darker aspects of transitioning children, you you might not get it at all. And so it might seem kind of um, odd that, that he would have on somebody who's taking my stance. And I have to say another thing is that in a matter of really 15 minutes of footage, trying to display all of the complexity around this, it's impossible. It's literally impossible. And, you know, since the, since the conversation aired with Phil, I have thought and rethought and re-rethought of a million ways I could have answered the questions better. Um, And that's just the nature of these types of, you know, YouTube things. Um, but I think he's he's kind of opening up the conversation. And if people don't agree with what I said, I don't think they should take it out on him. I think they should, you know, propose other guests that he could have on or, you know, go look at some of the work that I do if they find that I'm, you know, so dangerous and see what I really say about things. I mean, again, a 15 minute clip is not going to properly express all my thoughts around this. So I was surprised um, to see the feedback. I was interesting but i do think most of the people responding um just have no idea what's happening in the world of childhood gender dysphoria they just don't know they don't Mm -hmm. know it's it's i've I've spoken with um, angus fox i've spoken with uh, people in the uh, lesbian and gay and bi uh, and etc. community about that, and they're really worried about child transition. And they're if once we add up the corporate per- push for pride, and by corporate I mean every major company and all the news outlets, and then within pride is this this world of gender, and mm-hmm. then within this world of gender is medicalization, and mm-hmm. within the world of gender medicalization is the medicalization of children, mm-hmm. and within that is some p- false positives, in the very least. Right. There right. are children who are being separated from their genitals when they don't have to be. That is yeah. a fact that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. That is such a strong, powerful thing that most people will have a very negative reaction to that. And that's all linked up 
to being gay and lesbian because of the whole pride thing. So the abuse of children, the, un, the, the unnecessary medicalization of children and the manipulation, if not mutilation, mutilization of their bodies is now being linked in the public eye to mm-hmm. gays and lesbians. It's, it's very worrying for a lot of that community. And mm-hmm. I suppose... Um, in in the process of you communicating this and us communicating this and and standing up against this push for acceptance, which comes from this lineage of civil rights that is a part of our country, and we've done a lot of good things to end up on the right side of history, so called in our progressive stance. This yeah. is going too far. Yeah. Um, so it's really it's counterintuitive to the American liberal, in the very least, to resist this thing that's wrapped in a certain flag of acceptance and tolerance and progressivism. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you said that really well, and I agree with you. And I get really curious about the way medical technologies become available and ubiquitous and how they become part of the rhetoric around civil rights. There are, you know, is, is it a civil right to have your health care covered? You know, is it a civil right to be vaccinated for polio when that, you know, is a disease that wiped out God knows how many people? Cause, but we have the technology now. So is it a right? And I, I totally agree with you. I mean, obviously, that's why I'm here talking with you and I'm talking about this all the time. But I think that it's. What scares me is it might be possible for people in this mindset to think these medical interventions are a civil right. They're a human right. And that's kind of how the transgender movement, I think, has been successful in pushing this childhood medicalization idea. So I'm skeptical that, I mean, I think on one hand, I People will be shocked to realize that there are young people being medicalized who then regret it. But I don't think the process of medicalization in and of itself is going to shock everybody. I think it's kind of part of our concept of what we are owed by a medical system that can provide these things to us. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you make it sound like a handicap parking spot. Or a ramp. It's it's the right for access, uh, somebody yeah. in a wheelchair to get inside and outside of a building. Uh, right. In, in the same way, it's the right of, if we have the opportunity to alleviate distress by this complex medical procedure that we're still, uh, it's still in uh, experimental phase, at least with children. Is it? Is that fair to say that it's still yeah, experimental? Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up because this is something I was hoping to talk about. I mean, Stella and I did a couple of episodes about the, the medicalization and the history of medical intervention for gender dysphoria. And it was fascinating because anybody who studies this or is one of those kind of parents with a PhD that Stella talks about, like you realize that there's actually an avalanche of information to sort through and it's very complicated. So when we were doing those episodes, we really dug in to what are the foundational studies on which the whole enterprise of medicalizing children are based on. And it was really interesting to to look at these Dutch studies and realize that this whole thing is based on 55 kids. 
they studied 55 kids. They had an original 70 that they put on puberty blockers, and then they took 55 of those 70 and studied their like long-term outcomes over, I think they tested them around age like 13, 17, and 20-something after a sex reassignment surgery. And this whole thing of blocking puberty and putting kids on cross-sex hormones is based on one study of 55 kids, and the outcomes there will surprise people. First of all, one male to female trans person died because of surgical complications. So if you crunch the numbers, that's 4.5% of male participants died. Two, the researchers conclude that it doesn't actually alleviate gender dysphoria. (laughs) So these young people who were medicalized all the way still felt gender dysphoric. And they claim that there were some overall, you know, better reports of better functioning overall. But if they still have gender dysphoria, then obviously this is not a good treatment for gender dysphoria. And if there are other mental health distresses that were alleviated by this, you have to ask, well, what else could have alleviated that distress? (laughs) If the surgeries didn't fix the dysphoria, why are we doing all this? And if a participant died from surgical complications, In a small cohort of 55 people, don't you think we should really pump the brakes before we roll this out in like every American hospital? So this, and it's funny because the Dutch researchers who originally pioneered this type of intervention, first of all, they had a very thorough screening process. They only used these interventions on kids whose childhood dysphoria worsened by the time they were approaching adolescence. And since all of these clinics in the U.S. and the U.K. and all over the Western world have been implementing the affirmative approach, the Dutch researchers actually have spoken to the media and said, please stop misapplying our research. The cohort of dysphoric kids now is very different than the cohort we studied. And we believe that our research is being misapplied to populations that we don't actually know if this is good for them. So to me, the fact that those researchers have made this plea and that hasn't been on, you know, the ACLU Twitter page. Like we should be concerned if we're misapplying medical interventions to a population that might be harmed by them. So the fact that nobody's talking about that, except for, you know, a few of us at Segem and other parent groups and organizations, like what's going on here? Why is this not being shouted from the rooftops? These are children. Yeah, if what you said, 4.5% of male participants died, but 40% could have committed suicide, right? Isn't that the counterfact, the suicide fact, this 40% or something very large? Yeah, I mean, that, that number, first of all, that number came from a survey that was done after the Dutch started this puberty blocking treatment. They don't cite suicide statistics, if I'm remembering correctly, in the Dutch papers. What they say is, it seems possible that the distress from puberty may be more harmful if we don't intervene for the kids who are getting progressively more dysphoric. So they said there may be a benefit to intervening that outweighs the risk of going through puberty. Okay, so they're not, the Dutch study was not about suicide, The survey that that suicide number comes from was a self-report survey that asked individuals online whether they identify as trans, and if they do, have you thought 
seriously about hurting yourself or suicide. I don't remember the exact phrasing. But it's important to keep a couple of things in mind. First of all, the, the, the survey, it's called the Transgender Health Survey. It was like the largest survey of trans people in, in the U.S., I think. The survey does not determine whether or not the individuals answering the questions have medicalized or not. So what that means is you might have a 15-year-old who just started questioning her gender yesterday, and then you might also have somebody answering the survey that is had SRS 20 years ago. Like, we have no idea what the differences are there. And secondly, any therapist knows that a person stating that they've thought of hurting themselves or thought of killing themselves needs to be taken seriously. However, it's not the same thing as an indication of actual suicidal behavior. So one of the markers of suicide risk is if there was an actual attempt in the past, not if you've ever thought about suicide. So it's, it's a conflation of a lot of important things that maybe a lay person wouldn't know, mm. but therapists know this. Therapists who are experienced in studying suicide know this. So I think that statistic is really misused, and it's used as a fear-mongering tactic. And frankly, it's really a disservice to the young people themselves who hear this coming from an authority figure and then they're afraid that they're at a high risk of suicide. And like, there was a book written a few years back about this string of um, suicides in like Palo Alto, California. I don't know if you've read it or heard about it, but they, mm-hmm. they, they showed, like they were talking about all of these kids in these very kind of expensive private schools that all had kind of suicidal behavior. And there was like a long string, unfortunately, of kids killing themselves. And it was found to be related to the reporting on it. And so the CDC has really strict guidelines about how we're supposed to report on suicide because, sadly, it spreads by social contagion. And it spreads by creating kind of a glamorization of the victim or simplifying the reasons for their suicide. Like, oh, she killed herself because she had a fight with her boyfriend. Well, you can't say that because that makes it way too simple. And it creates in the listener's mind, or the viewer's mind, the idea that suicide is a solution to life problems, even though the reporters don't mean to do that. That's the, the, the gift and the curse of psychology. Like our, our brains do weird things with information. So in general, yes, that 40% suicide number is A, it's, mis, it's a misused statistic, and B, it's irresponsible to keep saying to young people who are already distressed that they are at a high risk of killing themselves when, first of all, they're not, and second of all, you don't say that to a young person, and you don't say that to their parent to try and threaten them or kind yeah. of you know bribe them into or blackmail them or whatever into medical treatment. That's just so unethical. The activism, like so much activism, is not responsible in the same way that research is and therapists are. And the details that are unearthed by careful study are suppressed by the just the algorithm. If you're trying to send a big file to a lot of people and you only have so much bandwidth, you got to scrunch and compress that mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. So much mm-hmm. is left out yeah, uh, yeah, into yeah. these little sound bites that, that go out and then are, are built into these arguments, these kind of shambly arguments that are then enforced by a bunch of people with a bunch of different intentions behind enforcing that. But yeah. like I saw on your 
on the Barnaby Dixon video, there it's just I, I just want to point out the the phenomena of whenever a whenever the story or mm-hmm. this narrative that you're presenting gets a certain level of a platform like there, there's this magic number when it gets too visible then it this kind of this mob behavior comes and, mm. and really tries to cover it and divert mm-hmm. from it mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's just an interesting phenomena uh, that I guess it's at least important for people to be aware of that that yeah. is kind of how it works and I didn't mean that Barnaby's going to lose his job, but he's mm. putting it he's putting it at risk. Yeah. Just yeah. just strictly from the fact that people are getting canceled left, right, and center for presenting yeah. ideas that are contrary. I mean, so I just wanted I, to say that, that there's there's a certain level of bravery that is needed to actually stand up for that. And that's probably why a lot of people don't speak about this particular issue as well as a lot of other progressive issues mm-hmm. because of the uh the, the chilling of speech and mm-hmm. the uh you know the, the consequences are mm-hmm. uh, projected to be pretty high or possibly very high yeah i i think that's right you know i i did whenever i go on people's programs which i haven't been on many but i always feel a little bit protective of the person because i don't want anybody to kind of get in trouble for having me on um you're already in trouble you've been in trouble for years so it's like not uh, worried it's, about it's you. part of my brand to get in trouble <laughs> yeah that is part of your brand um, but you're right. I think it took a lot of, of bravery. Um, yeah. Whether he knew what the backlash would be or not, I think the fact that he's, um, you know, he's still continuing to tweet clips and engage yeah. with people on it. And um, well, I mean, they, I and there was a big was a backlash great... for 60 minutes too. I mean, they were going to do an episode. If I recall correctly, the episode was entirely going to be about detransition, and they scrunched that down and they sandwiched it with pro-trans uh, positions. So there's a lot of pressure that's applied to to suppress the complexity and the consequences of this issue. Yeah, and you know, with, with, with a platform as large as the 160 Minutes has, I'm really curious of what is going to come out of that because, you know, people, people like myself, typically we only get the attention of either families who are going through this who really need our support or gender dysphoric people who don't feel the affirmative approach is that helpful or we get the the kind of visibility from the activists who are kind of trolling you know gender exploratory people but 60 minutes is reaching a huge swath of audience that literally knows nothing and i think the way they presented their story even though they couched it within the, the need of ensuring trans people continue to get care and that trans kids can have interventions, I think the fact that detransitioners have had the experiences they've had is going to be a wake-up call for a lot of people. So to your point, you know, I do think that there's a lot of pressure, but I get the sense that 60 Minutes is doing just fine. And you know, when you're like a small person hmm. like me, the activist pressure can be really scary. But when you're 60 minutes, I wonder if they feel insulated from that. I mean, I wonder if they've had a lot of support. I know, like, you know, after the piece came out, I think we've had more contact on IATDD for people who are detransitioning. So I think stories like that are going to resonate with people who haven't mm. felt like their stories were heard, hmm. or even therapists who, you know, agree with Erica Anderson or some of the you know, WPATH clinicians who actually think we should be a little bit more careful. Like, I don't agree with everything Erica Anderson said, but, you know, she did express some reservation about just yes, rushing everyone through transition. That. So yes. even 
people who are for the most part on board with affirmation might see some of their concerns reflected in the program. And I think that's a good start. Again, I I think it's a starting point. It's not the end point. Mm -hmm. And so there's reason to have hope or faith that it will be self-corrected. I mean, it's got to self-correct eventually, but do you see it being self-corrected sooner or later at this point in history? Well, I think what might happen is that as more reasonable people start to have concerns about this and and more people who otherwise didn't know what's going on are asking questions or raising their doubts, if the activist clinicians just keep doubling down, they're going to show their cards as being really ideologues and a little bit crazy. <laughs> and so that might be what brings the house of cards down mm-hmm. and and maybe move towards a much more um kind of like reasonable care-based model for gender dysphoria that is yeah. not just get them on medicalization. So I think if people within the affirmative care field don't appropriately respond to this people will start to kind of realize what's going on. I hope that's true. I, I'm concerned that they're going to chalk it up to part of the gender journey. You know, like, well, you medicalize at 13 and now you're 18 and you're detransitioning, but that's all part of the beautiful gender journey. And like, that's what I'm worried they'll do, try to spin it. Kind of like what Erica Anderson did by saying that these are transgender people who didn't get adequate care. That's my worry. Um, and if that catches on more kind of societally, if people buy into that, then I'll be worried about what that means. It's it's kind of Orwellian to kind of say that these people are actually trans people that didn't get the right care or to say that this is part of a, quote, journey. I mean, it's really very manipulative and it's scary. Well, welcome to the postmodern world. <sighs> I know. I, I try to be, I have a very good friend and colleague who always says the truth will come out. The truth will come out. Because I do get very worried and a little bit nihilistic, not about like life in general, but just about like, how can we, is this solvable, you know? Mm-hmm. And so my my friend always says the truth will come out. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> do you have any other opinions? Um, we can, <laughs> nope. like so just the end, end of the episode, uh, you know, just like yeah, bucket really. list of okay. controversial issues. I, I just wonder if you want to like venture into oh patriarchy gosh. or to be honest, like throughout the course of a regular week, I, all these ideas will come into my head and I'll think, Ooh, I should talk to Benjamin Boyce about this sometime. <laughs> and then they all just, when we're actually in front of the camera, my brain is now an empty vessel. <laughs> Wait, can I ask you then when you think of me in your head, you, do you say my last name? Do you, do you think of me as Benjamin Boyce? When, no, w- no. When you're like walking your dog, your cat. Uh, <laughs> and I, I wonder w- w- if, if I should uh, send this footage to Benjamin Boyce when you're filming. I'm going to send you a video of me walking my cat. You could stick it at the end of this, okay? We can? Yeah. I'll put it at yeah. the beginning. I've been doing it at the beginning. It's if it's, if okay. it's a minute long. Yeah, I think it's less than a minute. Um, I, I think of you as Benjamin, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know other Benjamins. 
so you're just okay. Good. Benjamin. Okay, I was just wondering. That that's, that'd just be weird if you if you reference me by uh, by my last name in your head. Um, but did you have any other thoughts about um, uh, any other controversial issues uh, having to do with gender or not? Mm-hmm. Well, can I plug a couple things and then get back yes. to your question? Okay. Yeah. So um, some colleagues and I are are working on an organization that is going to be kind of like a networking organization um, of therapists who try to work with gender in an exploratory way. I mean, on one hand patients or clients who are looking for help around this issue are having a really hard time finding therapists who use something different from the purely affirmation model. And on the other hand, we're constantly getting contacted by therapists saying, hey, I'm starting to see more dysphoric clients. Can you help me figure out how to work with this population? So we we see a need and we also see uh, an opportunity with therapists who are interested. So w- it's it's in the works. Nothing is official yet. But any therapists who um, are watching this or who you know may be interested can get in touch with me, and we're going to be putting this together. We're going to have a, a website where we help connect clients with local support, and we also will be um, kind of creating like a mission statement of what we believe about gender dysphoria and the autonomy of the client, and also the the value of exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully creating some training programs for therapists as well so that they can learn about in all kinds of ways to treat gender dysphoria and work with patients on this. So that's one thing. Um, another thing I'd like to mention is GenSpect, which is an organization of parents. So it's international. They're parents from all over the world. And they have um, organized to try and bring some public attention to the issue of childhood transition. So I think they're going to be working with um, some media outlets as well, just to to provide support hmm. for parents internationally. Um, I don't know if there was anything else specific. So now let's move on to controversial <laughs> opinions that I have. Ah, oh, gosh. <laughs> what's this is a this is an impossible question. So you can totally uh, bat it away. But what's your take on the th- uh, the psychological impact of lockdowns on young people? Yeah, we we actually did an episode about this. I think it's a really big deal. Um, I think if if kids were already feeling isolated before, it is only more so now. I know that a lot of clients that I work with really went into a dark place when COVID started and the lockdowns happened. And, you know, if you have a person who's already prone to being kind of anxious and fearful of the world, you know, mm-hmm. nothing like a pandemic to exacerbate that. And, um, yeah, that's not to say that if there is a legitimate risk that we should tell people not to worry, but, but it's just, you know, there was such a confusing response about this pandemic in the media that, you know, I, I never knew what to make of it, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm an adult with my thinking faculties intact and I'm not going through like a deep depression or some existential crisis. And so for young people, I think it was really confusing and hard. Um, and just generally, I'm pretty sure it's not great for humans to be afraid of each other and to be afraid of strangers. And Mm. I wonder like, how does that impact us collectively when for so long you were kind of taught and told to literally be 
afraid of people like and, and I'm guilty of it. I mean, I remember when this first started, I, like going outside for a walk, I would like cross the street if there was another person. And of course, now I'm not doing that. But man, the level of of fear that it instilled in us for other people probably can't be great. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I mean, I also know of, of young people who were relatively healthy, who, you know, died during COVID and, and had, you know, relatives die from, from catching COVID. So like, I guess the point is I don't really know what to make of it, but I, I do think it's really important that we as a society understand that there's always some risk involved when we live amongst others and that having a zero risk expectation is not right. Does that make sense? Why isn't it why isn't it right to have a zero expectation? Because we don't have that happening? for anything else. We don't have that for anything well, else. Yeah, but why can't we just want that? I mean, why can't we just have that? That's a great question, but that's utopian kind of idea and that's that's always going to come at the risk of actually living your life and and having joy and being engaged and being part of the world. I mean, if you want to cordon yourself off and try to mitigate risk in every potential place that it might come, you can do that. But I don't think that's a recipe for a good life. The psychological impact of expecting a utopia or even demanding a utopia has the fallback of a narrowing of your interaction with the world. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. It it Hmm. creates um, like a fundamental distrust with anything that's outside of yourself. Hmm. And that is kind of a recipe for paranoia. And it's a recipe for um, isolation. And like, isolation is not good for people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I know you're almost asking to be not facetious, but you're kind of trying to understand, well, why, why can't we? Why can't we put place risk as the number one factor that we consider in our decisions? Isn't that the human right that we're all after? A risk-free existence. That's the human right. There's a book I read called, um, oh God, I'm not going to remember the name, but it's by, a, I think it's by Atul Gawande. It was about um, the care that we give to geriatric patients and like older people in like retirement homes and things like that. And he was talking about how safety is the number one factor that is always considered, but that totally comes at the cost of the autonomy and sometimes the dignity of the older people who are living in these places. And it was a very interesting exploration on aging and, you know, the fragility of old age and how how our medical institutions are kind of set up to prioritize certain types of values like mm-hmm. safety. And it is an important value, but is it the only value? And what are some alternative values that could be valuable? Um, But yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Like, why don't we make having a perfect risk-free existence our number one priority? And personally, I wouldn't want it. Well, don't we see that kind of in the safetyism, so-called, that was explored by Haidt and Lukianoff and Twenge and uh, yeah. iGen and then coddling of the American mind? Like, there's once you start to set safety as the value, you you actually start to create weaker humans in a way, less uh, more fragile or less anti-fragile human beings yeah. because of the expectations that they have. Um, mm-hmm. 
And and it never never really gives you the opportunity to grow beyond where you currently are, right? So when we do challenge ourselves or when we experience difficult situations and overcome them, right? Because I mean that's that's the thing. If you experience difficult situations consistently and never find yourself able to overcome them. I don't know if that's necessarily a growth opportunity, but when we are able to overcome difficult situations, that's when we expand our concept of what we're capable of. That's very, very powerful. And that's an important aspect of, you know, psychological growth and self-esteem. We talk about self-esteem a lot, um, but that's a really key component of it is to to kind of trust yourself that even if you're challenged, you can figure it out or you will be able to do it or overcome it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that creates a locus of control, which is more inside of yourself rather than being the victim to everything that is a circumstance around you or being a victim to whatever's imposed in your life. If you have a sense of feeling confident that you can have some control over the outcome, that's valuable. That answered my question. Okay. I'm so glad. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've done all the plugs. Do you want to have an after party or is there anything else you would like to tell the audience at this time? Mm. Such as you promise not to not come back on in a year, but sooner. I promise not to come back on in a year. You promise to not not come on for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you were kicking me off and saying our final goodbyes. (laughs) Oh, no, I don't want, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready. For, I want the grand finale to be final and grand. You, you've called yourself a brilliant YouTuber, and you've asked me not to come back in a year. So we're on a roll today. You know, yeah, this, this is great. Um, uh, you, you're taking the cake at pers- uh, interviewees who are misinterpreting me to brilliant effect. Oh, I'm I'm so glad to be part of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think we can we can start the after party now. All right. Well, say goodbye to my audience. Thanks for joining me, Sasha. Goodbye, Benjamin Boyce's audience. Thank you guys for listening. (laughs) Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.